0: he's taller than me and i I got my guy dan out here man um dan is a great dude i've actually studied dan when i was just trying to become a coach uh he was doing great work at virginia high performance formerly now he's in dallas um but he does a great job in terms of just pushing his standard of what training should be for his niche and more importantly his standard of what training should be for everybody so dan um just introduce yourself more to everybody and you know your background where you're from
1: yeah so uh i mean i i'm it's cool that we're finally getting a chance to sit down and meet. We've been going back and forth for about a year now, so yeah. it's, it's cool to get a chance to chop it up in person. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I spent about six years, six and a half years of Virginia Art Performance, um, working predominantly with the tactical military uh, population, uh, largely predicated on restoring injury and, and you know kind of um, maintaining performance while getting healthy type of deal. Yeah. So now going to Dallas, we're kind of standing up our own thing. Um you know, and, and trying to kind of bring that same restoration model to an athletic performance. So, you know, even though by by trade or by by title I'm a strength and conditioning coach, ninety percent of my work over the last decade has all been focused on injuries. Mm-hmm. So, I think what I'm getting to now is recognizing the versatility to strength and conditioning, which is you know so commonly perceived as being this very rigid and small box that mm-hmm. you you have to do these certain things for. And I just disagree with that. I think that there's a lot more, you know, again, versatility to it and, and a lot of different ways that we can apply similar concepts
0: to produce different results. Definitely agree with you. We talked about um, down the first phone call down to Miami about, like, you know, there's a wider spectrum of the SEC environment that doesn't just have to be you just take people put them in the bar or just time speeds or just simply just try and chase numbers. It's, we are in a continuum that shows that the fundamentals of how these lifts can help us improve um, our athletes and our population. So, in a sense, how can we get that model more, and I guess you could say broader, like we talked about before? So,
1: we think about it um, almost inherently through the lens of performance, Yeah. right? And I would arbitrarily say that we've got a pretty good grip on that, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if we're going to, you know, look at something to confirm that, I would say that If you go back and look at the NBA Combine testing, you look at the NFL Combine testing, you look at, you know, a lot of the records that are being broken, we are clearly getting better at performance. For sure. Right? And it's, you know, it's not to say, and I know, know, you know, this, we're going to stay on the basketball theme, right? So, like, we look at guys like Sean Kemp, Michael Jordan, Muggsy Bogues, throw him in there, right? Like, dudes that were just jumping out of the gym. Derek Mason was another one. Um, You know, for... Three, four, five decades, right? Forty-five plus verts, right? But now we're seeing guys that are like mid and low tier players. But they have that 40. 40 jumping out of the gym. They can cover the court faster than anybody could in the 80s. Like mm-hmm. the the level of performance is truly impressive. It's accelerated to a tremendous degree. With that being said. If you look at the injury data, the injury data is not compatible to that, right? And right now, the bulk of my focus and and study has been in the NFL, so I I can speak to quite a bit of the numbers there. But even without examining the data in basketball, we've seen much more presence of guys having difficulty sustaining the workload of the NBA. And Very the big true. talking point two, three years ago was the load Working, management yeah. and the Kawhi Leonard. Can I cuss on here? I don't. Yeah, you, right, right, yeah, yeah. you can, <laughs> you, you can oh. for sure <laughs> cuss on here. But we saw the Kawhi Leonard saga and it yeah. you know got everybody up in arms. But you know, two, three, two things can be true at once, where number one, I think people do undermine the workload and the demand physically um, that's involved at the NBA and the high level of college you know, an 82-game season is serious, man. That's not to a, count playoffs as well. Not even counting the playoffs yeah. or playing for the Olympic team or doing all these other extraneous leagues and whatnot. So, to get to the point, the injury statistics have continued to rise. While mm-hmm. our performance has gotten better, we have not figured out the restorative side yet. I also think that there's a tremendous amount of understanding, uh, you know, left to be had in terms of the psychology and the cognitive and the brain function yeah. and how that influences everything. Um, but we are at a point now where the awareness is at an all time high, which Mm -hmm. is a good place to be in, but awareness doesn't solve problems. So awareness needs to create action. Once action is generated, then we can start to actually make an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm trying to push is that, you know, with the construct that we've had for at least 30, if not 50 or 60 years, this division, a very strict division between performance coaches yeah. and then physical therapists ATCs you know whatever rehab coaches there's too much separation between those there needs to be more of this ubiquitous model that you know everybody is kind of working in tandem together because at the end of the day how do you define or determine when somebody needs to be mm. treated on more of a restorative end versus more of a performance end true right you know what i'm saying like so if uh, if we take kobe i'm looking at him right now Right, we take Kobe in year one, year two, year three, year four.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Was Kobe Bryant ever not working? Was he ever not doing something? I mean, That's right? Mister. You know, four times a day. So, do we need to really emphasize the 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 work? performance yeah. programming for Kobe, or do we need to have some foresight and sit back and say, okay, we clearly have an all time great talent. We have a guy who has quite honestly, probably the greatest or second greatest work ethic of any, you know, noteworthy superstar athlete ever. For sure. Why don't we get a jump on the restorative side? Immediately. Yeah. Right? And for him, this is actually interesting, right? Because for him, it would have been thousands of times more difficult to crack that psychology code Mm. than the applications code. Mm. Right? The work would have had to have been on how do I convince...
0: Him this to dude
1: in. Yeah it's a lock in With the restorative Part of it Right Telling him To pump his brakes Yeah That's tough man Yeah But And, and he ended up Obviously going on To do what he did Right And he, and he had a, a Phenomenal uh, You know Sense of durability in the, in the fact that You know Really he didn't even Have a real injury Per se Until year 12 14 get Yeah the take? Achilles It was before Didn't he have the shoulder Before the Achilles No no no
0: Achilles came
1: Then the shoulder Came okay. after Okay so then it was really more closer to 16 or 17 yeah. years. Yeah. Um, so it's a testament to his his ability and his genetics without a doubt. Yep. But, you know, again, circling it back, I think with where we're at right now, we just need to put a little bit more attention on that side, and we need to understand that this thing really isn't concrete, man. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of room for interpretation, and that's what keeps me invested in it because, you know, if we had this shit all figured out, like, I'd have, I'd have fucking... I'd already. I'd have been done, man, because it's not
0: becomes corporate real quick
1: you you have to if you're going to be a strength and conditioning coach or practitioner in any sense um you know within the human performance umbrella you have to have some level of immersion there has you have to be absolutely invested in solving the problems yeah right and that's existentially speaking but it's also tangibly speaking in that the, the, the one on, you know, the one off programming, like you need to be able to enrich yourself. And that's the point that you're solving a specific problem for a specific person. Mm-hmm. Then in the more macro sense, you need to be ob- observant enough and, and kind of, uh, you know, have the wherewithal to understand and detect your niche and how that sits within a bigger picture, or yeah. bigger industry and how, what you're developing can then influence the rest of the industry. Very and true. I think that's really what makes this shit fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you're really trying to, in a sense, create your own role.
1: I've always looked at it as doing the work is the commitment to, to others. I'm sorry. Doing the work is the commitment to self. Sharing the work is the responsibility to others. Mm. So in other words, I'm I'm motivated by me. I'm selfish as fuck. I, I would love to sit here and, and say, you know, yeah, I put all this time and effort in for the betterment of my athletes and because and of course that's true to a degree but at the end of the day what motivates me get better I want to be better so more important than the person's 40 time vertical jump Achilles injury whatever yeah is me getting better sure so I'm utilizing this relationship or this professional working uh, relationship in that I'm going to provide my absolute best every single time. But I'm also trying to pull everything that I can from that situation so that I can then take it, learn it better, and then apply it for others. Because if one person has a problem, somebody else can have that problem, hmm. right? And that can be everything as general from like a rotator cuff tear and Achilles tear to more, you know, kind of nuanced or subtle things. Um, you know, in my world, it's been the MS and the cancers and the gotcha. you know, spinal pathologies. Like, I'm not going to have a, a ton of people in that class very often, but I've learned a ton of shit through those types of of, uh, people um, or populations rather that applies directly to sports performance. And I'll just give you a quick example on that. Mm. Um, Empathy.
0: Mm.
1: Empathy. And, And genuinely trying to understand someone else's point of view and somebody else's day to day. When you have an amplified situation like somebody with terminal cancer, it's easy. You sit there and you're just like, I I fucking have no idea how I would live with that. So now you take it and you transpose it to a more mundane situation. I'm working with a group of 16-year-old basketball players and, you know, dude who's usually the kind of clown of the group Mm -hmm. and the talkative one comes in. He's got his head down, hands in his pockets, and he's just kind of, you know, all over the place and anxious. And instead of me looking at that and going, man, what the fuck, man? Get your shit together. Hey, what's going on? Take the time. Something seems different today,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, well, you know, girlfriend just broke up with me and blah, blah. Mm. People don't understand that a, a breakup for a 15-year-old is the most relatively traumatic thing that most kids are going to experience to that point. Very true. Right? So, in a relative sense, it is no different in terms of the stress response or the emotional response for a 16-year-old to get dumped by a girlfriend after two months than it is for somebody at 40 to lose their job of 10 years, you know... Right out from under him, exactly. right. As that as well that, as that as stress yeah. is real. And we have this really fucked up paradigm right now of you know trying to like you know foster this military boot camp style of training and teaching discipline and mental toughness and blah blah blah. I think that's the biggest crock of shit on the planet. First of all, it's ineffective. So if it's not effective, it's not pragmatic. If it's not pragmatic, it's not for me. Second thing is is if you can't fucking walk up a flight of stairs without getting out of breath and, and grabbing at your low back and knee, who the fuck are you to to you know bully a kid into running for, you know, an hour and a half until no he pukes, Yeah, You know? Like you, we've gotta have some understanding of parallel here. And it just shows me a complete lack of empathy and, and an inability to empathize. And if you don't have the ability to empathize, then that tells me that you don't have very much real-life experience. You don't have real-world experience. You've lived in your own little bubble that you've created. You keep your shit to yourself. you got your blinders on. You don't give a fuck about anything else. So then how am I going to bring you into a situation where I, I need structure and I need you know coalescence and I need people to have synergy Yeah. if you're going to be that type of person? Empathy is one of the most powerful skills that any coach can have. You very have true. to have a better understanding of other people's situation in order to have an effect on it.
0: Nah, for real. And I believe like that's what um, I embody this company to be about, which is always trying in a sense how to put myself in the client's shoe and make sure like everything provided solutions to their problems or an example of how they could probably solve a solution. And I do that because it's like so they on the previous podcast. If I don't change your character, how can we really get to your goals? If a lot of your characteristics are in a sense holding you back, whatever you're trying to attain is not going to be possible. But let's just say, like, you know, we really do our job and just say, let's focus on being disciplined with one thing, which is just showing up to here on time. Let's just, in a sense, show up and do one thing right. It could be if your form's not good, let's just get that better. If your footwork isn't good, let's just get that better. Let's just get one thing better at a time. Just to help them understand that they can really improve upon something and give them that confidence. And now say, hey, look at the six months you spent with me. Look how you improved so much. Take these things and go apply it to your life. I had one client named Justin, you know, um, his goal was to put on, I believe 20 pounds of muscle and also squat four or five in less than a year. So a lot of hypertrophy, strength and power, um, in a sense, blocks going back and forth. And once he finally got there, he said it helps him pass his real estate exam because he said that by having the mental fortitude, to always be consistent. So always go to the gym and go to my PT hub and, you know, type in the numbers and clock out and say, I completed my workout. He said, he started to take that and apply to everything. He said, if I can be successful in this, I can be successful in other areas. and so. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so, for me, it's like, you know, I have all these, you know, ideas of how I can improve the sports performance world. But from, like, the foundational level, if I can't, like, help you improve as a person, whatever we're trying to do is not going to work. And I've worked with a lot of kids in the post-grad world. And who you are off the court really is going to change everything else on the court. We had a kid, you know, six seven, six eight 6'8", from Martinique with a 7'2 wingspan couldn't he was unathletic um the coach didn't even start him he was our tallest player so i said all right i'll do a two day with him i'll drive to the gym early five o'clock train him on like a lot of strength plyometrics and i said give me eight weeks and he'll be dunking it was like man now nah, forget about it we're not gonna start the kid you know he just a goofball we don't think that will happen to him the kid said coach i want to go you know d1 on take care of my parents you know we're poor i just want to be a great player I'm driving to the gym every morning from 4.30 to 5.30-minute drive to the gym every morning at 5 o'clock. And we're just, you know, doing a lot of RDLs, a lot of hang pulls, go out to the court. We're doing a lot of, in a sense, um, sprints. Just doing a lot of stuff in a manner that he's never been exposed to before because he's been taller than a lot of kids on this island. So all you have to do is just sit there, grab the ball, and push Mm -hmm. it out. So really pushing him to, like, really be a true rim running big. And eventually we started working our way outside the block to a lot of, um, you know, jab jumpers. Um, reverse pivot shots uh, pump fake put the ball down dunk a lot of things he was never exposed to so giving him the tactical the technical work as well as just a broad baseline of just how to get stronger in the weight room allowed him to evolve he's blocking shots now he's dunking catching oops in eight months they like damn it's not the same kid Uh, make a long story short he gets a scholarship but as he's getting his scholarship his like mentality is starting to change he's easily influenced and we had a couple kids around the area that's from like you know I'm not going to say a dangerous side of town, but they're just doing some, you know, out of the ordinary, uh, you know, saying stuff that's against the law. He starts to get influenced by that. Um, he changes his whole mentality. So by the time he gets to the next school, um, this is right before the pandemic, he has to stay there, finds trouble, and gets kicked off campus. And in a sense, is still, like, uh, I think he got in trouble with, like, some gang-related activities. And I think called the director one time, asking live with him. He's like, nah, man, you got people coming after your head, like, you know, it's almost like, I guess, a hit on his head at this point. But, you know, you really in some deep stuff. You're not about to bring it here to this program. You got to go fix it. But just to say that his character took away whatever he worked for. Sure. And, you know, just being a black man of Jamaican descent, I realized, like, you know, that's what, that's what carried my father so far away from education was that he didn't have a GED, didn't have anything. But the house I'm in right now is because he worked so hard. And always told me that, you know, you don't have to be the, the, the the in a sense, the most popular person. Just pick one thing in life that you're good at and just make sure you're the best at it every single day. Yeah. And that's his craft. And that's how he's able to pay the bills. So character for me, I think from like 21 until now, was honestly the biggest difference of what made you average, good to great. Because the work will always be the work. In a sense, the um, performance will be the performance based upon the programming. But who you are as an individual will enhance that totally. So I'm all about being empathetic because it allows me to put myself in that person's shoe and see their world and always, uh, in a sense, ask as much as possible, how do you see it and what goes through your mind? So I can extrapolate that, put it in my brain and figure out like, how can we really get this person next level? Aside from just doing assessments, aside from just trying to program something like, how can we truly push the right buttons? We push the right buttons, we got proper programming, you know, we make sure it's about high intensity, high intent. We're going to get a great result in the end because the progress can get sustained not because physically but you know from a character standpoint you will you won't compromise it you will do everything in your power to represent not only the work itself but who you are which is greatness
1: i think all that's fantastic man uh you know it a lot of it just circles back to just being a really good human yeah you know and i think uh from my from my perspective or upbringing um you know, the best thing that has helped me was being a piece of shit for a long time, Mm. you know, and now it has become, and I've been in this space for, for a while now, but you know, it was like, I had to deliberately and diligently work on being a better dude, Mm. right? Like everything from treating people with respect to, you know, being more empathetic to being disciplined and, and reliable, um, you know, and I think that if I didn't have that phase of time, about three or four years of just kind of being a fuck up, I would have never prioritized that.
0: That's mm, what you're saying.
1: Because there was no reference, right? And if you don't, again, if you don't have undulation in your life, if you don't have a time point of either being a fuck up or you lived in a different country or you, you know, relocated schools and yeah. had to learn a new environment, like if you don't have those experiences, then everything just kind of becomes synthetic, Mm. right? Like I just am who I am and every day is within kind of these margins here. I have a little bit of room over here, a little bit of room over here, but I never really deviate beyond that. Then all you ever do is you go into this refinement period where you just reinforce your own ideology and you just reinforce your own beliefs and, and everything is, you know, automated because you're not met with challenge. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's in uh, that, uh, anecdote there is is a really good example of that. In that, there has to be levels of confrontation and friction and challenge, and you know, getting outside of whatever norm is for you, so that you can continue to build this panel. Yeah, right. And it's from a coaching perspective, mm-hmm. right? It's it's weapons. Like yeah. you are weaponizing your skill set by having a broader sense of understanding or experience with people, because you can then to deliver or direct messages or instruction more precisely to different individuals because you are able to kind of, you know, fluctuate up, fluctuate down. I need to be the hard ass with this person, I need mm-hmm. to kind of pull yeah. back with this person. I need to be, you know, make sure I make eye contact with so and so and then with this person. You know what I'm saying? So like it always is a continuing process, but I think that for me, you know, was extremely important and then you back that with you know, and this kind of goes more to the, the entrepreneurial side of it or whatever, but it's like, I'm not driven by money at all. I don't, you know, frankly, I don't really give a fuck, but all I know is, is like, I know what it feels like to be broke for sure. And I will not be broke again. I don't care about being rich. I'll never be broke again. But if I didn't have that experience, right. and, And if I had the contemporary conventional upbringing and I did really well in school and I had a, trust fund and my shit was taking then I had this mm-hmm. and Man I wouldn't I wouldn't be shit, man, you know? Like you, you, yeah. you've gotta kinda have some versatility to what you're doing in order to, to build something, you know? For
0: sure. Yeah, I agree with that point because for me it's like I will say getting fired from a job that was already underpaying you, right? But getting fired from a job and, you know, only having three clients see a name and you quote unquote have a performance company it's like, okay, You better fucking figure it out now while you're trying to get a new job. So you better use this performance company and go get clients. And it turned me into, I guess you can say, a better entrepreneur in that moment. Because I could have easily just kept applying or do DoorDash or something, right? And just keep saying, oh, I'm going to slowly build this up. Mm -hmm. Nah, I just said fucking. So somebody called me back. I'm going to just go balls to the wall. So I'm trying to figure out how to generate leads. I'm like, well, I need to go. I'm like, all right, let me talk like 10 people a week. Random people. I mean, landing like at least two or three people all of that out the week. Then I'm like, okay, cool. I'm landing people. I'm doing this. Now it's like, what's next? So now I'm just thinking about how do I expand? Do I go talk to this team? Do I go talk to another group of people outside of my radius? I just got so obsessed with it because it's like, I don't want to be penny pinching right now. I don't like this feeling. I don't like this feeling of knowing that like each week of me barely having like, you know, three to four clients is only enough to just pay these main bills and have $20 left. It's, it's a very sinking feeling because you're always stressed, thinking, like, what's next? Hopefully, you know, this doesn't pop up, this doesn't pop up. I don't like that stress. It's very much, in a sense, Um, I, what's the word I'm trying to say? I guess you can say it's very much annoying, to make a long story short, knowing that, like, I'm always running into this check-to-check problem. So I simply said, I'm going to build this up more, get more people so I can live a more comfortable lifestyle. And once it got there, I was like, yeah, I'm never going to go back to this shit. For what? Like, why would I go back and experience that? So, so your point is like, you, it's just like the human body. You have to be stressed out to a certain degree to understand what it feels like and then produce a response. And if you don't produce a response, you're going to break under it. So,
1: the, the ironic but counterpoint to that mm-hmm. is after, after going through struggle to get to a sense of stability and comfortability, I had a really hard time when things got stable. Right. Mm. That was far more challenging for me than being broke, having no friendships, no relationships, nothing like. I think the. For me, that first two to three years, you know, really like when Nicole and I, when my wife and I got got serious, she was a, a major catalyst for me. Got you in so many different ways. But, you know, she clears my debt. She Makes me get back into school, yeah. you know. Get like she was fundamental, but it was like I—I I specifically remember when she moved in. We'd only been dating for like six months, and uh, she moved in, and I remember we brought her shit in or whatever, and then she was like, "Okay, you know, let's go to Target or wherever, right?" And, and get some more furniture, yeah, did. you mm-hmm. know, no, and. We go, we go out. We get a, a a TV. We get an Xbox. We get a sound bar. We get a new coffee table. We get a end table. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is, <laughs> Welcome to stability, Dan. It's like, <laughs> you're you're sure we? Yeah, it's fine, right? I'm talking like fuck a couple hundred bucks, you know. And that bothered what, the shit out of me. Was it a mind fuck? It was just like, it was like, oh shit, how am I gonna? What, what's going to motivate me now?
0: Oh, fuck. That's a good one.
1: Right? Because like I had been reliant on check to check on, hey, if you don't do this, you're fucked. Right. Yeah. So for me, it was actually very comfortable to just be like, oh, I got to go to work because otherwise I'm going to get kicked out of my apartment. Right. Yeah. But once I reached that first sense of comfort, right, and that was probably after three years of, of rough. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was tough for, for about two, three years. Gotcha. Right. So that first year of having comfort. I just didn't know what to do with myself. And it was almost like, uh, I don't know if it was like guilt or, or you know, kind of like self-deprecating. But I was just like, man, this is crazy. Like I, another one, like uh, whenever, and I still do this to this day. Whenever I put my debit card in, like at 7-Eleven or wherever, I always wait until the shit says approved. Chill, and I remember chill, when, chill, that's me. Dude, I remember when <laughs> me and Nicole first got together, we were ringing out and, she starts turning to walk after the dude says that, and I'm like, "Don't do that! Where are you, where are you going? Don't do that! You gotta, we gotta make sure we get a green light, you know." But it was just natural. Yeah. That was just normal, yeah. right? And so for me, it was like, man, I, I almost needed to create some level of disturbia, or you know, some I see sort what you saying. Some,
0: some some form of like, in a sense, what to say, chaos, but something that was- is. Something it similar is. to
1: that dysfunction. It is. It's, it's controlled chaos. But then, you know, to get to the constructive part of this, after that phase, you know, of, of whatever, three, four years, I was able to kind of pivot it to just making unbelievably lofty goals. That became my chaos. Right. Like just put something way the fuck up there that you probably deep down really know isn't going to happen. But that's now the fucking goal. And that gave me almost like an inverse chaos pressure, you know, because now I look at it like, yo, I don't have four hours on Saturday to go to dinner with you all. I, I wish I could, but if I, if I lose Do four that. hours on my, th- on my Saturday, yeah. that pushes my whole month back 10%. So now if my whole month is pushed back 10%, I'm going to have to double up next weekend, which is going to take away. And, and you know what I'm saying? So like I've created these almost like phantom, Brackets or barriers that if I step outside of that for too long or too often, then I'm going to fucking ruin everything. I'm going to lose my dream.
0: You snitching on me right now. <laughs> but no, it's the same thing. Uh, I got a, I got a client, uh, Khalif. Shout out to Khalif. Uh, he has a company called Your Water, a great water company right now. Probably is top five as we speak in terms of selling waters in America. Um, I told him my goal is to like have bigs be on the NASDAQ like, next 10 years. And to say you want a sports performance company, not a shoe company, not a, I guess you can even say like, maybe a commodity, right? I want a sports performance company on the NASDAQ as a stock option. That sounds crazy, but I don't care. Like, right. I want it to be that high. Because in your case, very similar. You know, watching Kobe's music, he talked about using like your dark emotions a way to get to the next level. Once he got to the point where I got to the next level, I didn't know how to function. It was kind of like, Okay, I need to think about some bad thoughts again. It's like, nah, I want therapy. That's, that's out the system. So it had to be like, okay, these crazy-ass goals that make no damn sense now puts all this stress on me. Now that same response is now going back into effect. Same thing with you. So I definitely understand to my own degree because it's like by having that, in a sense, external stressor that is very hard to reach and damn near impossible, it keeps the fire going. And I also look at it like this. Like, what the fuck else are you going to do? You got something You gotta do something You know What else are
1: you gonna do So like And people love to shit On the You know The ambitious entrepreneurs And I know it's 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 weird to say But it's almost like Being an entrepreneur Is like trendy Right now um, Or within the last couple years Fucking trendy Is a great word And uh People love to shit on that, but it's like, dude, you, you fucking sell mortgage insurance and (laughs) listen to, you know, 15 different bosses to tell you how to organize your day. And yeah, yeah, you may have a 401k and you may make good money or whatever, but I'm not fucking bending over to, to six different people and, and working a job that I hate so that I can just go home and express it with fucking finances. I mean, come on, man. Like that to me is, is crazy. That is, that is clinical level psychotic. Yeah. Right. And, and we'll take this into risk, risk assumption, because that's been something that's been very present for me. I think we talked about this a little bit, we but, have. but for everybody else, right? Like, uh, I, I moved my wife who was six months pregnant across the country, mm-hmm. stepped away from a six figure job and, um, had no job offer, no guarantee, nothing, uh, pretty much on a whim. Like we top to bottom did this in about four weeks, four and a half weeks. And, um, You know, and that's not this, I don't say that at all for praise or anything like that. But the point of it is, is that everybody that I spoke with was like, wow, that's really risky. Like I, you guys have, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in your savings account because you got to be able to cover this and you need to have this Mm -hmm. much money in advance. And like, nah, not really. Like, you know, we're, we're just going to go find somewhere to work and go to work. Right. And, um, I never saw that as being fundamentally risky. What I see as being risky is being a yes man and being compliant to everything around you mm. and just saying that, hey, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to check every box. I'm going to be a good employee, a good professional, um, and I'm just going to be here until something provokes me otherwise. And then all of a sudden, you're 8, 10, 12 years into this you know, tenure with a business or in a, maybe even in just a certain industry or profession, and then you wake up one day and you go, oh, my God, I can't do anything else. That, to me, is risky. Because now you're forced into a corner. Now you have to continue that job that you don't really like or you may even hate. Got no choice. Because you are too far into it and you are literally too old to to go go do something else, right? You're 47, 48 years old. It's like you're not going to just restart something at that point. It's extraordinarily rare. So the risk assumption in my mind is this blind compliance where you're just like, Hey, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm consistent and I'm reliable. That's cool, man. But is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Is this what you really want to dedicate all your time to? Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of aspirations for yourself to each his own, man? It doesn't, it doesn't bother me either way, but to me, that is the risk Mm. taking chances meeting new people, taking on new opportunities, trying new things, trying the same things in different ways. Yeah, there's assumed risk with everything, but there's assumed risk for me to go get in this car and then drive across Atlanta, right? There's assumed risk in everything. So I think that we have kind of over-evaluated that sense of risk while ignoring the complacency, right? That to
0: me is the risk. It really is because you got to think about the compound and effect of that. Um, If you stick within this box, right? And let's just say, let's just go back to like sports science. You have your elastic region for plastic region, right? If you never, in a sense, allow yourself to just stick within this pla- elastic region to just always expand and push more into the plastic to make more changes. If you stick over here and you don't ever, in a sense, try to push yourself, you're just going to be stuck. And so now when it's time to make changes, it's hard to adapt. Yeah, it goes back to expectations and, and standard of self, though, because
1: I think that, um, I mean, I, I'll... I'm not a big people person. It's crazy Mm -hmm. for me to say as somebody who's dedicating their life to helping people, but I don't, I don't, people say that shit like, uh, you know, there's everybody has value and there's, you know, everybody has something that they, I disagree fucking fundamentally. I I think there are a ton of people that don't have anything to offer really. Not for me at least. Um, but to the point, I think that the problem that the majority of people have is that they set very low expectations and very low standards for themselves. Oh, for sure. And they hit dead on. It's not that they aim high and they miss. It's that they aim low. unconsciously aim low, hit, and then realize that they're dissatisfied or or upset by that. Mm. That's what I think. And I think that that creates this, um, you know, duality almost of, you know, how much more do I have to compromise and just kind of stuff down and compartmentalize so that I can maintain a functioning marriage or maintain a functioning family and have some level of respectable income. So, all right, here I am. Here we go. All right. I'll get to 62 at some point and then I'll, I'll retire and, you know, do whatever. Like that to me is an asinine projection. But um, I think that it's something that, people need to continue to reshape and reform because my expectations for myself today are tremendously different than they were 10 years ago, which they're tremendously different than they were two years ago. Yeah. Right. Because it's an evolving thing. You for meet sure. people, you're introduced to things, you have different opportunities and you have to stay in in somewhat of an impressionable window as you go through this. Because if you're, you know, let's say for instance, like us, right? Like I'm a little, I've got a little bit more years on you, for but, sure. you know, I'm like eight, nine, 10 years into this it, that's usually a point where people are like, all right, I can,
0: yeah, respectable years, right? Like mm-hmm. I,
1: I've got a good development. I've got a good sense of stability. I've got a good income. Um, I can kind of just coast and, and, you know, we'll, we'll do more. We'll, we'll add on to this, but right now I'm just going to breathe for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Big mistake, big mistake. That's the critical time to punch mm-hmm. because after you've done eight or 10 years, now you actually have fucking
0: skill. It is true. So, right? is like, so now I
1: actually have something of value. So now I have to learn how to repurpose that and repackage that and then introduce it in different ways and apply it to different people. Right. But people think that this is the the grind phase and, and, and this is where the hard work is. And it it is. But now you're going to be able to work hard with return mm. because those early years you bust your ass, but you still suck at everything. So you're still fumbling and you're still not really earning a a high dollar wage because you have, you don't have experience and, you know, so you burn and you burn and you burn. And then I think people get to that seven, eight, nine year mark and they're like, all right, now we're good. Yeah. More return for your dollar. And that's the problem. That's when you got to push because now you can actually change shit.
0: Yeah. Like you said earlier, instead of you having like, you know, being worth a dollar a minute and now you're like worth $2 a minute.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then that's what creates exponential growth and reach. Yeah. Right. Because, and it's not only that, like we can take this a different way too, where it's like, you know, I did, I did about just over 15,000 hours Mm -hmm. at BHP, 15,000 hours. That's a lot of hours. It really is. Right. That's a lot of time. If we're going to stick to 10,000 as mastery, I've almost hit that one and a half times. Right. So that was a point where it was like, okay, now I can either hang my hat on this or I can fucking do something with it. Mm. Right. And that is again like the critical step is like now make it into something. Don't just tell people you have experience, show people what experience created for you. Hmm. So now we have things that are tangible, that actually help people, that are associated to your name or your brand, that introduces you to new people. You get an opportunity with this company, whatever. Right now we're starting to materialize something. And then I think it's probably, you know, I'll know when I get there, but. I'll probably say the same shit at year 15 and year 20, right? Like, what are we, how are we reinventing now? What are we doing now? Because if it's done, then it's done. It's like a Steve Jobs approach. Yeah. And, and it's also kind of a Rick Rubin approach. Sure, sure. Right. Everything is everything. It's Mm -hmm. always in motion. We're constantly, it's the glass egg theory, right? Like we're just constantly doing this. We're shifting, we're oscillating, We're adjusting, we're trying to create some leverage, and we're just trying to keep things right where they are. right. So if you take your eyes off of that, or if you feel as if you have earned the ability to take your foot off of the pedal or take your eyes off of it, then you shouldn't have had it to begin with. Mm. I, I, I really mean that, because there's so many fucking people out there that are doing this at such a higher level than I am. So if they're right there, and I'm right here, then that means I'm still yeah. on course and that's exciting. Like that, that excites me because if I felt like, especially at 30, 32, if I felt like I had made it or I was accomplished, well then I didn't, I didn't set out to do enough. Mm. I mean, that's simple, you know? So it's an evolutionary thing and it's in a develop, it's a developmental thing. And I think that that's what people are, sh- are shying away from or scared of, yeah. but that should be the most exciting part about whatever it is you do. Whatever you're in, like that figuring out, problem solving, how can I affect or help more people with my skill set? That should be what drives you, you know, and the money and all that other shit
0: that'll come with it. So to that point, uh, expand upon basically your 15,000 hours, which has led to like, you know, you having a right now and uh, you pushing you and your peoples are pushing like a lot of great value within, you know, trying to push out something that's unknown to some some that are still new to us and what are the fascial systems in terms of um, how we use it how do we integrate it because like we talked about before it's not trying to reinvent the wheel it's simply saying hey this is a part of the wheel it's right. like it's like the weights when you right. calibrate the weights you say oh what's that shit on my wheel it's the shit they use to calibrate your wheels with, right. but you never pay no attention to it it's the same as that They now is like really in a sense utilize that the right way so just talk about that more
1: that that time at VHP that 15,000 hours was the most indelible part of my career by far mm-hmm. and i don't think it'll ever be matched no gotcha. matter where i go what i end up doing i don't think anything will ever be able to truly match that level of stimulus because again i was a fuck up i got kicked out of college mm-hmm. i had, i was academically ineligible had a lot of problems right and in a matter of two to three years, it went from being very fragmented to now I'm at a very high level facility and like one of three that's Mm. there. Right. So I'm instrumental to what we're doing. And the time that I had there was, and I didn't recognize all this until, you know, somewhat after the fact, but like, it just was this iteration or, or demonstration of, how I can utilize strength and conditioning principles to have a very broad effect,
0: mm.
1: right? And there was, there was so much more to it, right? There was so much gratitude. There was so much impressionability. You know, I'm literally working with some of the most elite killers and people and, you know, leaders is definitely the word that comes to mind the most in the entire history of the world.
0: Mm.
1: Right? And like I'm getting a first class education from these people. Like that's an unbelievable opportunity. So I've taken all that stuff, but to the fundamental point here, getting an opportunity to see over the years how I can look at this in different ways and how I can apply it in different ways. Took something that I liked, being strength and conditioning, I liked it. I thought it was fun, thought it was cool. To now, I don't know what my life would be without it. Hmm. I don't know what the fuck else I would do. I'm not good at very much. I have no idea what I would do if I weren't doing this. Because it, it is such a unique endeavor. And there's so much complexity to everything. And there's a very sensitive and delicate recipe. And and there's different outcomes from di- from the same inputs across different people. And yeah. why does that occur? And then how come there are some people that are genetically sensitive to putting on muscle mass while others are genetically sensitive to putting on fat mass Mm. what are the effects of brain injury and how does that transpose or, or transpire rather in the mechanical sense of the body how does the metabolism in the endocrine system affect the muscular output like you I say this all the time but this is literally the easiest or the most difficult job in the world I could wake up every single day make great money never think an ounce about it just go do it and be fine Mm -hmm. This can be very easy. Don't get me wrong. But once you get to the points where you're like, oh man, there's more, there's more, there's more. And that was what led to the fascial system. I didn't know what the fuck fascia was in 2013, 2014. I had no idea. Right. But when you have a population that demands you to think outside of the box, Mm -hmm. and I've told this story a few times, but the reason why I ended up getting into the fascia stuff was I had a dude who had, um, a very deep, uh, thoracic cancer it was it was a nasty rare form of cancer and they had to go in and they had to break his sternum break his ribs cut his pec lat serratus everything and when he got to me there was very clear atrophy and, and you know asymmetrical imbalances so it took you know maybe 30 30 seconds to a minute before I was like okay well we're gonna have to do something different for this dude and bear in mind he was 34 35 still active duty high level getting after it shit right and um, so we still had to perform right it wasn't just this you know it wasn't like a 68 year old dude yeah. who we're just kind of nursing back to nah you gotta get it cracked. we gotta go yeah so that was what led me to the anatomy train stuff with Tom Myers and them mm. and all the fascist stuff and I learned about the slings yeah right I learned, and I'm like oh shit that's interesting. So now
0: you're starting to like put so-and-so two two together. So we
1: start looking at it from that lens. And then I started throwing in like the offset loading and some of the biased rep prescription stuff. And it worked. It worked great. We had to win an unbelievable turnaround in six weeks. And I was like, okay, that was too effective to only be able to work for him. There's something more to that. And I just went crazy on the fast, crazy stuff. rabbit hole. And then it ended up serving another purpose for me in that, you know, as I mentioned, I sucked in school. I was not good at the the conventional academic stuff um, because it never made sense to me. Hmm. I'm like, how can this shit be so fascinating? But I'm falling asleep in biomechanics lab. Like that doesn't add up. And then I went back around and I'm like,
0: their models incomplete. I see what you're saying? You're actually putting the dots together now.
1: Yeah, their models incomplete, and and I will I will patently stand by that. And I know that rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but I'm not sitting here saying I'm some kind of fucking genius that figured out something and I'm going to debunk this entire system that's been in place for 50, 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. It's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, is that not very many people in conventional strength and conditioning get forced into the boxes that I was forced into at VHP. Mm -hmm. So it's never prompted them to think differently about the applications that they're applying. So, because of that, we have reinforced and doubled down on the same set of shit, basically. And while we've been building that out, we've forgotten about all this out here. see what you're saying. Right? And then, now, I'm just trying to kind of... You're trying to bring the per- perimeter back squeeze in. And, yeah. Squeeze them yeah. back in. Because, just because I've... Now, I'm, you know, the fascia guy type of shit, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I don't want to exclusively be recognized all fascia, as that. yeah. Because that would infer that I don't believe that biomechanics are a fundamental principle. That would infer that I don't believe that or I you know don't believe in, you know, mechanical tensioning of the musculoskeletal systems, mm-hmm. right?
0: Uh it
1: it builds you or it breaks you. It really right? does. And if you look at the majority of people who have reached ultra levels of success, right? Not not contemporary success, ultra levels of success. Pro athletes, Mm -hmm. Fortune 500 CEOs. The majority of them come from fucked up backgrounds. For sure. Because it goes back to kind of what we started with where it's like, I'm either going to make it or I'm going to be dead or I'm going to be in jail or I'm going to be whatever, right? So I don't really have much of a choice. And for some people... Um, and this is a really fascinating thing to analyze, but, Mm -hmm. you know, for some people that pressure that, uh, you know, the, whether it's being impoverished or whether it's being, you know, a a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever, right? Like there's so much opportunity if you can get to the other side of that. It is. There's so much opportunity It is because what a fucked up day looks like for you Mm -hmm. is drastically different than what a fucked up day looks like for most
0: people because your stress tolerance level
1: yeah because you know in like uh you know i forget who it was but i was listening to uh you know some nfl linebacker Mm -hmm. um talking about you know boiling water for bath water right oh bro and he was like
0: that's that's my mom's oh there are people doing jamaica like that's the hot water
1: and he was like, I was six. I didn't know kids took a bath. And I didn't know there was a thing that... Turned hot. Yeah. Yeah, you just go get a big pot. He's like, yeah. I just- <laughs> and boiled it. We just knew that this was how we-, yeah. we took a bath, right? So that was really interesting for me because it reinforces the importance of relativity. And it reinforces the uh, kind of the paradox of happiness, mm. right? Yeah. Because, and he specifically stated this. He was like, we were very happy. He was like looking back now. It's fucking wild. He was like, but we were was no very complaints. happy. There was no well, complaints. Why? Well, because there was no reference. He, they didn't take trips to Disneyland. They didn't, you know, you didn't have those luxuries, those affordances, right? Yeah, so, in no comparison, so the happiness was cultivated from a very intrinsic place, mm. and it was a very genuine sense of happiness, right? And I can, I can, to an extent, I've never been in that situation, but yeah. to an extent, I can relate to that. And um, you know, and I think that that's what creates or prompts um, you know, people who were raised in more comforting and, and protected environments, their inability to be adaptable. Fucking adaptable. Yeah, trust me, I've or, seen them. Or worth a shit. <laughs> right? Because the second just, part for sure. Because you just you have such a narrow experience. You just assume or expect that everything works in the world the way that you see it. Because you're just so stuck in this little box. And like it's, you know, if I'm being fair, it's like it's, you know, to some extent people can't really be held accountable for it until a certain point. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's just really important for people, especially in the early 20s. To experience a lot. Just do shit. Yeah, just go experience a lot. Go do shit see things, do things, meet people and, and purposefully put yourself in environments where you disagree politically or you disagree religiously, or you, you know, uh, you know, even on lesser scales just are, are not necessarily comfortable around. Right. And, yeah. um, and I think that that's something that there's a lot of value in because what we, we were very externally driven, mm-hmm. right. And so we're, we're constantly in search of things that, we aspire for or that we can relate to or that are coveting to us. They have value for us. And so it kind of creates this unconscious driver demand of like always making decisions to put yourself in a position to be around like-minded people that are doing similar things and blah, blah, blah. And I, again, I would say that that's a fast track for complacency because if your reference pool is only so wide, you're going to continue to think that what you're doing is right. You're perfect. You're ahead of the game, blah, blah, blah
0: don't challenge you don't have any objectivity man yeah you've got to take a step back and and look at things from a different lens you know yeah for sure because like for me right now like i'm in training at a uh, studio gym learning how to like you know do group fitness training and coaching kids to coaching adults to bust their ass for like 45 minutes doing just strength-based or cardio-based exercises you would think i'm just gonna hop on the mic say some shit and that's it right Nah, it's legit science to it. Like, you legit have to have a rhythm, a flow. You have to, in a sense, know who's approached, who not to approach sometimes. Because sometimes certain people are in their own workout flow and they don't want to hear the forms fucked up. Mm -hmm. So, sometimes you got to know when to peek ahead and when to peek ahead out. That is a characteristic that is particularly unique to black
1: people and especially non-American black people. Mm. Because you have to be very observant to behavior. Very true, right? And I and I like if I'm being fair, right? Like it's not exclusive to the black community because we can just say impoverished in general. But I have particularly noticed this mostly with my black friends, where the ability to assess and detect body language is uncanny. Yeah, it's top tier. And you and you always and a lot of the times it may not necessarily even be verbalized. But I got to a point where I could start to detect how somebody was assessing somebody else based on how. I was feeling off of them. Easy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's kind of interesting.
0: You can read it almost instantaneously.
1: I am going to, at some point, once I'm physically able to take this on, mm-hmm. one thing that I want to do from a, philanthropy, uh, from a philanthropy sense is I want to have a scholarship opportunity that is exclusive to HBCUs. Hmm. The, the reason why is because it bothers me that there isn't a stronger black presence in, in strength and conditioning. And the majority of the ones that are are just former athletes who converted to the strength and conditioning side. And I, I think that there needs to be a little bit more of an incentive from a developmental sense. But that's a conversation for another time. For sure. But the point is, is that I think that those types of traits and characteristics right are needed in the community. Bro, think about how they translate to coaching. Hi. right How somebody feels when they walk through the door how somebody is looking or moving in a physical sense
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is something on their mind. Right. Are they in pain? Are they, you know what I'm saying? so like, it's, I think that there's, and I've taken a lot of things, uh, you know, from, from we'll say intangible type of knowledge and applied it to coaching. And it is tremendously helped tremendously helped. Cause like we keep saying, like, the set rep prescriptions, the exercise selections. That's beautiful. Training. That's that beautiful. Easy. That's beautiful. Easy. Deal with somebody. Change in physiology is easy. Change in behavior is next to impossible.
0: <laughs> exactly. You right? my drift.
1: <laughs> so that, but that is where, so let's go, let's take this back. Because I want to make sure that this is a purposeful point that, mm-hmm. you know, what do we dedicate the majority of our time, focus, energy, and resources on right now in terms of developing and growing this field? It's trying to get even deeper and more detailed and more detailed and more detailed into the tendons and the muscles and the brain and and all of that is important but how much is that moving the needle when compared to this set of shit over here that is completely untapped understanding body language interpersonal skills, being able to multitask being able to solve complex problems being able to switch tasks quickly and then being able to get back into a rhythm like all of the, the humanistic skills are severely lacking from what I've experienced and I think that is what's needed to take this next step in human performance, right? And that applies equally on both the developmental and the restorative side. Very true. Because on the restorative side, I can write you a fucking 20-week ACL return to play program. That is not an issue at all. But what are those interactions like in those 20 weeks? W- but how do we interact with that athlete from week 0 to week 4? Mm-hmm. How does that change from 4 to 6, 6 to 12, 12 to 20? And what are the supporting structures and the supporting components to that athlete's return to play? Very true. Because getting a knee to move again is not hard, but getting them to move with confidence mm-hmm. and getting them to be able to trust the area and getting them to be able to reacquire certain skills, those things are challenging, and those require more humanistic elements than they
0: do biomechanical. So, is is great you said it because like I got this little setup with the books on purpose. Like one side is strictly just um, sports performance books. Mm-hmm other side you know saying books about a lifestyle or a mindset like principles already yellow good to great um it's just even a book about the elegant universe it's a um quantum physics book that talks about the different dimensions of the world and stuff like that and if you actually read out like, the first 20 pages you know how in school they show you how you have the um fascicles of the muscle mm-hmm. then you got the paramedic then it goes to like you know um the actual muscle then the muscle attaches the fascia then that becomes a whole muscle unit you have atoms, then you have something smaller that's called quirks, and those quirks in the sense you know, uh combine each other to make that atom. So, everything's connected and all that other stuff, but just reading different books to expand my mind to understand life from different angles is more important because um, those books there have allowed me to provide more value than a lot of these books sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because it can be a topic of conversation, talking about like, yeah, there's 10 dimensions in the world we live in. 10, yeah, you watch Marvel, right? yeah, watch Marvel. I'm like, okay, so you know how, like, you know, the, um, when, um, I uh, forgot the guy's name, but, like, you know, in Marvel, how you got 10 different dimensions, and if you watch, uh, Loki, uh, God is, like, on the 10th dimension and stuff, like, the other time dimension. So now you're talking to your client about all these different points, like, oh, for real, this is going on? I'm like, yeah, and it breaks down the quantum mechanics, and then, you know, so what dimension we live in? I'm like, oh, well, we're in the fourth dimension. What? How is that possible? I thought it was 3D. Yeah, but for you to be in a fourth dimensional world you can interact with 3D objects so right. whatever you interact with you have to be superior to it so you're telling all of this stuff to your client and the whole entire time now they're intrigued now they're going home and expanding their brain now they're giving you stuff now like you got any books like, oh, you like to read I'm like yeah here's this book here's that book now forget about the sets and reps of this forget about the biomechanics or the levers that's going to give you the most uh, adequate response for whatever we're doing now I have a client that wants to talk to me about life on a consistent basis why would you not come back right you know, it's just those skills and seeing the value of just br- much broader knowledge outside of this that, like, I understand, yes, quote-unquote, the field is not in a good uh, area of, like, knowledge and expertise, but like you said, the interpersonal skills are what really important because, let's go even go to the sports world, the most effective coaches are not the coaches who are the most X's and O's. Yep. It's just that We've seen that time and time again. Come on, man. I'm not yeah. talking no crap about Ty Lue, but Ty Lue isn't, like, uh, you know what I'm saying, um, Popovich.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's not a guy that's just an or even te- mm-hmm. not a spolster or he's not even a text winner who was just literally uh, Phil Jackson's right hand man who made the triple post office, tri- uh, the triangle offense. But he wasn't the most social guy nerdy as hell can tell you how by being at least 15 to 18 feet from these three positions were optimal for spacing on the basketball court. Why as a point guard, you had to be here and the lag option guard had to be there for a quick reversals to the weak side, all that stuff. But coaching, <laughs> forget about that. So, you know, it's it's really about trying to make sure we have a good balance of people skills and our craft because, in a sense, it's who we are. We're just people.
1: I think, I mean, those are all fantastic points. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a great representation of a few things, but the first one is the the importance for authenticity. And I know that sounds like a fucking, you know, cliche point. But it's but, true, though. But authenticity is this... You know, unveiling, never-ending pursuit of truth, right? Mm-hmm. Empirical mm-hmm. truth is is what authenticity is. Mm. Um, and nobody in any setting or scenario will ever be 100% authentic because we're we're too reliant on external input to create output. But if we continue to pursue that route of authenticity, I think it, what it does, two things. One, I think it brings out the best reflection of your work. But then also, two, it gives you the, the best opportunity to have fulfillment and enjoyment with mm-hmm. what you're doing because... I am, I'm, in a sense, I am attesting to what I'm committing myself to. Yeah. Right? And it goes back to that pursuit of, you know, the dollar and the growth and all those things. I've always looked at that as byproducts. Because this will sound more arrogant than it's intended to, but I've seen so many fucking losers from so many different areas, not even in our field or anything, yeah. that make boatloads of fucking money pieces of shit that make boatloads of money. So that gave me an impression early on that like, okay, anybody can make a lot of money, right? Gotcha, gave you the baseline. I mean, if that motherfucker can do it and that motherfucker can do it, like I can go make money if I needed to, like if that were my drive. But what is often more remiss is people having fulfillment in their routes Mm -hmm. to equity, capital, success, (laughs) revenue, right? That's rare, right? Being aspirational is rare. Mm-hmm. and i've i've had a really good uh kind of reminder of that i guess over the last few months because you know as we were moving you know across the country whatever we were having dinner with a lot of people some i see often some i hadn't seen in a long time and and it blew me away how frequently it was stated to some effect like oh yeah i hate my job but you know i make good money and i got a lot of free time and i've got a 401k so i don't really care Right. Good people, good, good people that do well and everything else. And but it's like that is really baffling to me because there's nothing in the world that fucks me up more than nothing. Right. Having to think about doing nothing is very difficult for me. Yeah. So for me, it, it was like almost like this kind of reflective sense of gratitude where I was like, man, I'm just really fortunate that I'm aspirational. If nothing else, I want to do something. Yeah. I want to have something and provide something. So if nothing else outside of that, that in and of itself is uncommon. For sure. And it's fucking bizarre to me, you know? So I think with the strength and conditioning stuff to kind of tie a point into that, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to be dejected by the the average annual salary, which is $44,000 a year. Very true. Um, for strength and conditioning coaches, for an industry that is... Uh, almost invariably uh, expected to work longer hours. Uh, They're expected to have more extraneous tasks and they are probably last in line to get any kind of acknowledgement or credit for anything. Mm -hmm. And that's an uncomfortable thing to sit with because $44,000 a year is not enough to have a livable... That's not a livable wage in today's world. It really isn't. Um, And it's offensive. So from my perspective, I... Just looked at that and was like, I'm gonna make a point of that. Mm. That's not what I'm aspiring for. I'm not aspiring to be a strength coach that makes average annual pay or national pay. Yeah. I'm now aspirational to not only triple that shit, but then improve it. Mm. Right? I wanna help that number go up. For everybody. For everybody. Yeah. Right? And and again, it's like whether or whether or not that's real, tangible, mm-hmm. possible happens Who cares? doesn't matter because that's what my day-to-day is focused on i really? wake up in the morning and the first fucking thing i'm thinking about is how do i get better at this shit how can we put this in motion how can we create create this right and i love it same here i was talking with my guy earlier today we were talking about um work-life balance right mm-hmm. it's one of the most it's like the most virtue virtue signaling of of our era right now like Trying to find that oh, balance. Oh, no, you, you can't work because there's work-life balance and, you know, family is always going to trump work and you... you know, no shit. <laughs> I just had a daughter a week ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? But I still am in, in Atlanta, right, for a one and a half day event to link up with you and link up with my guy, right? And for most people, they're like, oh my God, well, you just had a newborn. I understand. But if I don't get better right now, that little girl is either going to have to fucking have a a rough couple of years growing up, or Mm -hmm. she's not going to see me when she's in high school and she's in middle school. Because you didn't do the early work now. Because I didn't do the work now. Like, I'm working now so so that I have the flexibility down the road to do whatever the fuck I want whenever I want. Mm -hmm. And my intention is that I'm going to be at every single sporting event that that she gets into, or whatever it is she gets into, I'm going to be there to support that Yeah you know, and, and spend as much quality time as I can. But if I don't satisfy what I need now to be able to provide that, then we're both miserable because I have to look at her as being not taken care for and, and underprovided. And, That'd beat you up. and then I have to go back and think about all the shit that I didn't do. And now mm-hmm. I have to do these things just to make ends meet. And look, everything is symbiotic. My work is my life. My life is my work it is a component to what i do it is a priority for what we we have put together it's it's in it's a very 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 delicate thing for us because we are entrepreneurs yeah right i don't just work for this company and like i show up to their shit and then i go home like that's i can understand having that mentality in that setting mm. but in this setting it's like man every breath i take yeah has to contribute to what i'm trying to build and that to me is fantastic
0: yeah reen shoe dog finishing up right now phil Knight said a pretty great point he said uh in the earliest years of blue ribbon when he was like you know building the company up and like he eventually like you know legos his apartment started living inside the commercial space of the building and then he also said this he was like it got to the point where like if the company had to improve work just had to be played and i understood what he meant by that
1: yeah and it's not to say that every day's fucking sunshine and rainbows and it's mm-hmm. not
0: to say that everything is necessarily fun
1: But once again, I come back to the same point, and it's like, what the fuck else are we going to do? Exactly. You know, what else are you going to do? So do shit that you like, do shit
0: that you're good at, do shit that can provide value for others, and then get really, really good. Really? Just get really, really good. Yeah, because in the end, you know, go back to the bracket we talked about earlier before we started the podcast, you know, it's about putting in those 10 years, and then classifying yourself as a specialist, and then... It's, it's like you know just an investment principle if you put one dollar in and you get one dollar out you're not going to get anything right? right but eventually let's just say like you put one dollar in and this stock has like a 20 percent return every year that's what happens when you work in your craft it gets to the point where like for each minute you put in now you're getting more out of it but like you said if we get to the point where we master it and we get comfortable it's kind of like pulling out this stock early before we actually reach a type of um maturity point. yeah no that's a perfect way of looking at it
1: and and, you know, and there's a lot that goes into this, but it, it goes back to expectation, level of standard, mm-hmm. um, you know, self-perception, how capable am I? And this is the athlete in me. There's nothing that I'm I'm not capable of. Of course. I, I, I will be good at whatever I dedicate myself to. I understand at the same time that that is unequivocally not true, <laughs> right? But it's a level of defiance that athletes have, yeah, right? And, like, so for, like... So the athlete side of me, right, I had this palpable fear at 13, 14 years old that I was just going to be known as the, the white guy that shoots threes, right? The corner three guy, right? At so least,
0: so, so the, the white Bruce Bowen?
1: <laughs> at least I didn't think I was the GPA guy. At least I didn't have that role. But I was like, man, I don't want to be the white shooter. Yeah. I don't. So I just started, I, I bought jump soles and I lived in them. And I did every, every day I did that fucking workout, hundred backboard taps and then fucking bounding up. Right. And, uh, I ended up being like a slasher and, and fucking punching on people. And like, I, I wanted to be everything that they thought I, I wanted to be everything other than what they thought that I was. Gotcha. Right. And so now I guess I've taken that in a little bit of a similar sentiment mm-hmm. now where it's like, don't try to define me as a strength coach. That just happens to be the occupation that I get into. For sure. Because we can talk about fucking all different types of shit and how, you know, the, pertaining to the human body or otherwise, because I'm just trying to develop an eclectic skill set that influences people and that yeah. helps people. I just happen to be a strength and conditioning coach. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm.
0: And that part is cool. Nah, that's dope as shit. And like, I'll start to like, st- slowly round it off so you can go back doing your schedule. Um, who has been like your biggest influence as a strength coach?
1: I got a few. Okay, cool. Um, in my former year, like in my early early years, I I developed everything I know from Mike Boyle, Eric Cressy, Joe DeFranco, um, and uh, Al Vermeule. Those were, those were kind of like. My initial founding fathers, mm. right? Um, as of late, I've drawn inspiration from a little bit of a wider, uh, you know, type of person. But um, Stu McMillan mm. and and really everybody at Altus, Dan Pfaff and Andreas, and them, um, in my mind, are the gold standard for how this shit should be done. I, I just I really really like the way that they go about all of the technical stuff, but I think that the way in which they carry themselves and the way they, in which they represent this industry is, is the way it should be done. Nice. Um, I've had, uh, a, a tremendous opportunity to, uh, get involved with the, uh, kind of the fascial community mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, kind of the anatomy trains community. Um, so Tom Myers is somebody who's, uh, I, I covet his way of thinking, Got his free flowing kind of hippie ish. You know, maybe we don't fucking know anything. Maybe this is a simulation. You know, like I've kind of adopted that. Yeah. And then Alan Watts, uh, who's a I love Alan Watts. There you go. Yeah, uh, Alan Watts is is probably my closest form uh, of a of a religion. Um, and Rick Rubin and Doctor Dre. Those are those are kind of my big three, right? And uh, I said it a couple of years ago, but. Um, I've always been on the path of, I want to be the Dr. Dre of strength and condition. Yeah. You always told me that. Yeah. You know, and, and I've just always, the, the way that he is so obsessive and, and constantly in pursuit of better, 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 do it again, do it again, do it again. It was the first person that I heard, of, or that I heard it from where it like reinforced what I believed. Right? Like, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Right? Fucking, we got to make 300 free throws today. We have to make 300 free throws. Exactly. And a lot of people will detest that and be like, you know, ah, it's too much and you don't have to. Nah, man, like it. When the human mind has some, let me wash it off. Go, 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 go. Right? And then you see the way that he has kind of uh, evolved, really, you know, from being just a DJ or just a strength coach to being a, label executive and being a producer and now he's getting into headphones and now he's getting into the apple space yeah. and now he's doing this and like
0: because NFL he could have just been a dj
1: yeah right but it it matriculated and i think that for my sake it's a it's a very similar parallel yeah where i'm like I'm, i don't want to just be reduced to that I, I want to do more i want to be the reason that somebody else is found i want to be the I want to find an m M&M. and like, I want to continue to try to build out these relationships mm-hmm. so that I can continue to grow exponentially. It's not just about me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's that's been very influential for me.
0: No, it's crazy. You say, like, just being a shrimp coach. So, like, my first ever, like, job within basketball, where's the video? Same camera mm-hmm. right there. Video guy. So, a lot of my jobs, like, hey, can you come to this term record? Can come do this, like for a good little minute from I say 2018 to 2020. I was just known as like the video dude. Now, as I slowly migrated off, he's like, Oh, what you know? I'm like, Well, I'm coaching basketball more um, into more skill development. Okay, cool. That's that's cute or whatever, but like, you know, can you come through some videos? And for me, the videos helped me got started because I built a lot of relationships from it, and then not only that, but it gave me a skill, like what I'm doing right now is because of the videos, from the editing, to the sound, to the concept, to even creating content in the pandemic. Me and my guy, Coach Harper, was like, you know, it's the best time to just drop content. Um, the YouTube page is okay, but I was like, look, let's just flood the YouTube page full of a whole bunch of like, you know, basketball related stuff. So we did like a lot of... um uh just videos breaking down fundamental stuff, how to come off a pin down screen, a flare screen, um, how to properly in a sense um curl to the basket, just a lot of different fundamentals about some people don't cover enough of in our own in-depth breakdown and providing workouts for it mm-hmm. we did Zoom workouts as well on the Zoom. Um we even did like interviews uh called Quick Take. Quick Take was just I guess in a sense a podcast, but we were just literally sitting down with people that we were trained and just for like maybe ten to fifteen minutes. And you are revealing about who they are, what they do. Cause we figured out, like, yo, we are having an influx of mad people now since the COVID rules are starting to, like, calm down a little mm-hmm. bit. And we're like, yo, hey, we got, like, 20 people in the gym. We might as well just, like, make content. Like, I was yeah. just so obsessed about the content before, like, you know, school picked up. But I was just so obsessed about content, content, content. Make a long story short, like, the page back then was, like, around 3, well, before I get my degree at Georgia State. Then I was like, okay, cool, well, uh, like how can I relate this back to basketball? Yes, be a strength coach, but like, how can I add value to these guys in a way that's just unique? And it was uh, 2020 towards the end. Um, I get a job, leave the golf course. I go to Redline Athletics and I'm just in the gym and I'm just like dribbling the ball. And the court was kind of like closed off. We had no training. He like would put a lock on the goddamn net on some weird shit. So couldn't shoot. So I started like dribbling over there by the turf side. And I was like, I wonder if I can, like, improve upon basketball footwork right. on the turf. Because I realized every other sport has, like, footwork drills. Soccer, ba- baseball, football. Everything has, like, footwork drills to get athletes better for whatever the demands are for the sport. But when I realized with basketball, the only time we got footwork drills is, like, maybe we pull a, a random-ass ladder route and do icky shuffle for no fucking reason. So I was like, damn, we really don't got nothing. Like, we really don't have nothing. So I was just watching it. And I was just trying to figure out, like, what are different footwork patterns in basketball. And I'm right on all these moves. I'm like, this is a fucking fat list of moves. Mm-hmm. Then it got to the point where, like, oh, no, wait, no. That's the same footwork. Like, between the legs dribble, behind the back, and a sham guy, that's the same footwork setup. And in and out, in the misdirection cross, oh, that's the same footwork setup. Oh, a oh, a Different reverse. cadence. Different yeah. cadence or different ball hand manipulation. And so I realized, like, oh, it's, like, only eight different ways you can move your feet on the court. Mm-hmm. Then I realized, like, okay, well, why, how's this being occurred? Oh, the, the foot up. So just studying, like, inside edge, outside edge, seeing how that works, how does, like, you know, connect chains. How does, like, simply just using the inside edge of your foot cause the rest of the body to shift up like that? Then I started to focus on thoracic rotation, like how improving thoracic mobility and stability can actually like, add more, in a sense, force for you transferring that ball in your crossovers, Make sure you're in the right position sometimes. I just got obsessed about trying to simply add value, mm-hmm. and it kept going. It kept going to the point where it's like you put something inside the system, and the input is whatever it wanted to be, but the, but the system itself is just an obsession to get better. And whatever you put in that system, the output's going to be great. So it's it's similar to your story, just a different parallel, but I definitely can understand because in the end, it was never about trying to be something of, you know, being great or whatever it is. Like deep down, yes, I care about that, but in the moment, it's like, yo, how do I get this better? Mm -hmm. Like literally, how can I just get like from point A to point point B? And I believe that's the most fulfilling part. It's like legit, think about it, uh, try it. Obsessed, lose sleep, sometimes lose meals. And when it finally comes to like full conception, it's like, damn, I can die happy right now. Sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, but you also are, you, when you have consistency in this sense, Yeah. that is the way to creating equity. For sure. Right. Even though there isn't a tangible return at first, and that kind of ties into a few things we've talked about, but mm-hmm. like you are driven like I am by curiosity. Exactly. Right. Like I'm just, just curious like i just want to know more i want to understand more right and like uh i think that that is another part of it that is extremely important is don't get too materialistic in terms of outcome don't expect i hate it actually when people expect return on self-investment or personal investment Mm. like you should be investing in yourself because you want to or because you need to Mm -hmm. not because it's going to give you something out of it Right? Like, I do a favor for a friend. I go help a friend move so that in two years when I move, I can give him a call. Like, that is an investment or an exchange uh, situation. But for your own sake and for studying what you do, there doesn't need to be an immediate return on that. The more you put into it, the bigger that long-term payout or, or return ends up being. Yeah, And that has to be driven by curiosity,
0: not outcome. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, we talked about a lot... Great conversation. Um not going to hold you too long. I know you got a very tight schedule. Uh, this is my guy, Dan. This is episode, I think, 16. I figured it out. But uh, of the BSP pod. Thank you guys for listening. And my guy, thank you for coming to the house. Appreciate you, brother. Always.